You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hey, this is Sonal standing in for Georgia's Holly on the agenda. And on the show today, we talked about how the great resignation of the past few years might finally be over. It looks like we're seeing the great stay. That's as people decide to hunker down in their jobs, whether they're happy or not, because they're worried about job stability and security. We caught up with a recruiter here in the UAE to discuss if that is a trend that we're seeing locally. And as we wave goodbye to 2023 and look forward to 2024, we also wanted to look forward to some of the UAE's space ambitions, especially as international plans look towards the moon. Is the UAE going to have a role to play in that? And a major international story that we've seen over the last few days has been the New York Times suing OpenAI, which has, of course, ChatGPT. What does that mean when it comes to copyright laws and generative AI? How is this going to impact us all in the future? We had a lawyer in to discuss. And as the next round of submissions is open for the Zayed Sustainability Prize, we caught up with one of this year's winners to find out what the prize means to their business. And if you're looking forward to starting a new hobby in 2024, we got some advice from the founder of The Mud House, which is a ceramics and pottery studio, along with the Maker Society, which focuses in on woodworking, on how you can go about it. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. You are tuned into The Agenda. As we've been talking a lot of career issues over the course of the past two weeks, one of the ones we want to talk about is, are the days of the great resignation over? How do you feel about your job security currently? And also, are there enough jobs for all the people who are coming to the UAE? Because, you know, this is something that that we see a lot of people have a great interest in, in coming to the UAE to work. Um, it's, it's seen as a global destination that a lot of people want to lo- move to. In fact, according to Remitly, which is a U.S.-based remittance service, it's top the list. Dubai is top the list of cities people from across the globe want to move to based on Google search results that they're seeing. So with people looking to come here, is it tougher to actually get a job when you do want to get one? We've got Aus Ismail. He's director at Mark Ellis in the studio with us to discuss. How are you, Aus? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Good, thank, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for coming in. Uh, you know, you heard me talk about the term the great stay a reversal of the trend of of people leaving their jobs. I mean, what do you make of that? Does that line up with what you're seeing here in the UAE, al- along with being a global trend? Yes, absolutely. I think um, it's basically an add-on of what happened a couple of years ago, where it was uh, people had a lot of choices, you know, companies were struggling to attract the right talent and so on. Now it's come the other way where it's it's more, you know, there's not that many jobs available for people and, they're, you know, the companies are looking for specific skill sets. So it's become very difficult for them to find any job, you know. Yeah. And now I know this depends on the position, but just sort of generally speaking, how many applicants do you see per a job that's available on average? Uh, on average, I would say within a thousand, one thousand two hundred, something like this. It's it's a lot. A thousand people for it's just one job. I'll give you an example. We posted recently a job for uh, a HR role, and uh, there was in 24 hours more than 1,400 CVs in an inbox. <laughs> Is it? How does that compare to, let's say, a year or two years ago? Obviously, uh, there was COVID, so it was a bit of a different situation. But has that has that situation changed? Has it gone up? It has indeed. Yes, the numbers have increased. I think before it was, I would say half of that not even half of it you know and it was um you had to it was much more of a passive um, type of market where we had to go and mm-hmm. approach people whereas now people are coming and approaching us and what are some of the most in demand jobs because you mentioned hr i can imagine there are certain roles that have a glut of talent and only so many openings what are some of those where you are seeing large applicant numbers for each definitely technology job? technology mm-hmm. is always in in if you're asking what's in demand, technology jobs are always in demand. Where there's large applicants, it's more to do with HR, these type of roles, because there's so many people out there who are talented, mm-hmm. um, but not enough companies to take on these type of roles. <laughs> and where are we seeing it? How much is the impact of people moving here from abroad having on that competitiveness in the job market? It's because- definitely adding to the competitiveness. I think, um, you know, one thing that companies look for is immediately available people. You know, when, when they're looking for a position, they need it as of yesterday. So if someone is here, then they are usually, you know, you can say they they want to hire them or whatever. But at the same time, what's happening is because there's so many people, 
uh, that are you know here it's so competitive so personally my advice is you know it's better to look for a job when you're in your home country uh, speak to recruiters in here etc cetera, etc cetera, then move over rather than come here and, and look for a job right so don't just sort of take the leap move over here and then see what you can find because it is it is pretty tough at yeah, the moment and, and i think it also you won't get the type of expectation that you have in terms of the role itself or the you know the packages and things like this when you're over here because you you just want to get a job and are you seeing seeing people stay in their jobs even if they don't want to be anymore because part of that you know the great stay is the idea that maybe people actually do want to leave but they're staying for other reasons again because of security because of money and financial reasons if people are staying when they're not really engaged what can employers do on this front to make sure that's not really the case i think employers always look for ways to motivate their you know their employees and look at ways of how they can maximize the productivity and efficiency of their people but one of the ways is always development and upskilling you know this mm. i'm i'm a big fan of upskilling employees and i think that a lot of companies are adopting this to keep their people engaged even if they're thinking about leaving or something like this you know another trend that we've seen in the recruitment space or the the career space maybe not as much in the UAE more internationally is the idea of working professionals working for multinational companies actually managing because of remote work to have two employers or sometimes even three full-time jobs it kind of boggles the mind but when you read these articles about how they're managing it they are just in, you know because they've been in the role for so long they have a high level of efficiency and they're somehow able to do what should be a seven or eight hour workday in a matter of three to four hours let's say yeah it's a really interesting one to see this pop up globally is it something that you've encountered obviously it's a bit tougher here in the UAE because most people are attached to work visas yes it's it's tougher if they want to work in two companies in the UAE but if it's an international company and and one is here then it's easier for them it's actually a big problem um i've seen a lot of issues with you know different companies here who have suffered from things like this because there's always a conflict somehow uh, especially in the technology market it's very small they work with you know very similar projects and tools so something always happens and and it causes issues so i definitely don't recommend it for anyone and how can employers deal with this because again how can you know if somebody's coming to you with their cv they say they're looking for a job how do you know they're potentially working for a client working potentially even for a competitor yeah it's very hard to you know 100% catch on to it but there are extra security checks i mean w- w- what we do is we do extra security checks which allow us to identify you know if there is any potential that they're working anywhere and so on but again it's all down to if the candidate is willing to tell you and if they're willing to be honest you know so right. it's uh, it's a matter of ethical uh, type of thing in my opinion and what are some of the key trends that you're seeing for next year in the job market in recruitment Um anything that you're seeing in terms of trends especially here in the UAE that stands out? Yeah, I think uh it's definitely going to pick up again. So the job market is going to be busier and busier. Um I think a lot of people are considering um not just in the UAE the the region itself. I mean, uh Saudi Arabia is is picking up a lot and a lot of people are considering jobs where they work there and they travel back on the weekend, which is very interesting. We've seen a lot of people move their families in Dubai. work in Saudi so it's 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 an interesting trend that's happening now. Yeah, I mean we've heard anecdotally a lot of people from here who have decided to leave jobs in the UAE and move to Saudi. Is there this sense that a lot of Saudi companies are poaching some from the talent here? The competition is definitely on, you know, it's it's yeah. a, it's very it's a very high competition I think um the difference is is you have the lifestyle here everybody's used to the lifestyle in the UAE mm-hmm. and over there there's the opportunities to grow not 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 necessarily from an income point of view but you know it's it that the projects are sort of a few years behind so there's more opportunities where you can put a stamp on your work type yeah. of thing and just ask before we let you go today any final words of advice for somebody who's looking for a new job in 2024 any top tips from your side sure i think number one way to find a good job is to network networking is key uh, with recruiters and if not with recruiters speak to people that you know you'll be surprised how many ex uh, colleagues bosses whatever are looking for people so it's all about networking Brilliant. Aus, thank you so much for popping into the studio for that chat. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank always, you. Always always great to have you in with us. That is the voice there of Aus Ismail. He's director at Mark Ellis. Good
Good morning. You are tuned in to Sonal Rupani on the agenda for the final time this year. Georgia Tolley's going to be back with you after this long weekend that we have coming up. Really looking forward to wrapping 2023. It has been a busy one. I know it's one of those years in which time has just seemed to completely fly. So it's been fun to reflect on what we've gone through this year as we also look forward to 2024. Of course, let me know if you have any New Year's resolutions, if you have any plans for the new year. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. Now, a story that we are covering on the show today involves the UAE's space ambitions. We've been celebrating a number of successes that we've seen over the course of the last year, and we wanted to look forward to what 2024 has in store for as well. So on the join... On the join, on the phone to join us now to discuss is His Excellency Salem Al Mari. He's the Director General of the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center. Good evening. Uh, good morning, Your Excellency. Hi, good morning, Sono. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm a little bit confused. This whole week, as I've been covering for Georgia, I haven't said good evening because I'm usually on the evening show, and here I am, right off the bat. On my <laughs> final show, I've managed to do it. But thank you so much for joining us on the okay. phone today to reflect on some of the major achievements, first of all, of 2023, because I think the obvious one that comes to mind, of course, is that Sultan Al-Nayadi completed his six months aboard the ISS, brilliantly communicating with us all, representing the UAE in that mission, of course. But when you reflect reflect back on the year that we've had, the UAE in space. What are some other moments that you are really proud of from this year? Yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, 2023 has been uh, our busiest year ever in space as a country and also as uh, Mohammed Barash Space Center. And as you mentioned, you know, Sultan Niyadi's uh, mission really kicked off uh, officially on the 3rd or 4th of March when he was launched uh, to the ISS. But for us, of course, you know, there's years before that. So we can think of, you know, the, the beginning of the year was preparation for that mission. And then most of the year was conducting and, and you know, communicating and doing all the science, et cetera, all the way to him coming back around mid-September. And then, of course, since he's come back, it has been even busier because he's been giving back to the community, visiting uh, leadership, visiting schools, universities, different areas. So it's been uh, a really busy year for Sultan and for the team that's working to make sure that everything he's doing goes according to plan. And just for, uh, you know, for your information, we have about 100 people who are working with Sultan to make sure that that mission is a success. So big team and a lot of effort uh, there. And of course, uh, another big milestone for us was the mission to the moon. We, so we uh, built the rover. We uh, launched it uh, uh, late last year. And then throughout the first quarter of this year, it was on its way to the moon. And got very close. Unfortunately, didn't land. But that was also a very big milestone for us. So a big year of many firsts. And hopefully we have a lot more coming. Yeah. And as we look forward to what's coming in next year, as we look at the astronaut program specifically, potentially two more astronauts expected to graduate from NASA's training program this year. Nora Almatrushi set potentially to become the first female Emirati astronaut. They'll, of course, be eligible for space flight upon completion of that program. Do we have any ideas yet of what's what's in store for them? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, you know, they'll be graduating. So uh, they, they, you know, once they finish that, uh, they move really from astronaut candidates to uh, uh, astronauts who are ready for missions. And what happens then is they will come into our astronaut corps and then we'll do astronaut jobs. So, you know, astronauts typically uh, spend a lot of their time training for missions. Uh, when they're not training for missions, they have certain jobs that they do. Some of those things could be Capcom, you know, supporting missions from the ground. They could be doing outreach and education. They could be uh, doing, you know, new training programs. Uh, testing out new suits, things like that. And of course, we have a collaboration, long-term collaboration with NASA, where our four astronauts will slot into certain jobs when they are not flight assigned. Now, of course, when one of these astronauts comes into a flight assignment, which is then we have negotiated and, and concluded an agreement to fly one of our astronauts to the ISS or beyond, then it goes, you know, that's about a two-year cycle where they'll start to go into a mission-specific training for that mission itself, like Sultan did, who did it for about a year and a half. And that will include EBAs, it'll include all of the science, all of the prep for that mission itself. Mm -hmm. So if they're not flight assigned, which they are currently not flight assigned, they will then go into six-month rotation jobs, uh, supporting the UAE and supporting our team uh, that is based in NASA. Once we've assigned somebody, we'll announce, and then there'll be about two-year training 
for that mission specifically. And as we, we look forward to some major international missions that are coming up, of course, the UAE has signed the Artemis Accords. And as part of the Artemis program, NASA has said it plans to land the first woman and person of color on the moon. Initially, they had said 2024, but now that's been shifted to 2025. You know, being a part of the Artemis Accords, what is the role of the UAE in this potential mission and program? So um, these are two things, of course. So the Artemis Accords is a uh, basically an agreement uh, that countries sign up to that they will explore the mission in a sustainable and a responsible way. They'll explore the moon, sorry, in a sustainable and responsible way. So we'll protect the moon environment. We will protect uh, the Apollo historic sites. Uh, we will do things in coordination. We'll do things together. Uh, you know, no, no surprises in missions going to the moon, which is what we do. So, for example, when we send our rover or when we work on different missions, we're doing that in coordination. We're not going to send Arshad rover 2 to Apollo 11 site, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, a, a historic uh, a human, you know, a, a historic human site. So that's what the, uh, the Artemis Accords are all about. So that's an agreement. And that's what the UAE signed. Now, the Artemis program is something different, which is basically... Uh, the new Apollo program. So it's going back to the moon, but going back to the moon in a sustainable way through a space station that's built around the moon where astronauts can go and live there for about 120 days. And then from there, you will take missions down to the surface of the moon. And eventually there'll be a habitat on the surface of the moon. And that program is done through international collaboration. So you've got the Europeans, you've got the Americans, you've got the Canadians, Japanese, etc., all working together on doing that. Of course, UAE hasn't signed anything yet for the Artemis program, but as Artemis, of course, signatories, as a country that's looking at exploration, it's something that we have our eye on. And, you know, that's something that potentially in the future we'd be looking at. And tell us a little bit more about this international interest in sending people back to the moon, because the last astronaut to walk the moon was back in 1972. Of course, there have been interest in sending, you know, rovers and probes. But when it actually talks about getting somebody back on the surface, there's been a more than 50 year gap. So what are some of the main objectives from this program? And why are we seeing this renewed interest on on that that area again? I mean, you know, going to the moon uh, with humans, I think that's probably one of the most exciting things that we as a species have done in terms of space exploration. It's the furthest we've ever been. And as you mentioned, Sona, we haven't done it for 50 years. And partly the reason we haven't done it for 50 years is the immense cost uh, of the Apollo program, which was about, at, at the height of it, 5% of the U.S. GDP. Oh, wow. So one country cannot do it all alone. Now, this renewed interest is basically building on uh, the experience of the ISS and how you can live in space uh, for continued, uh, you, you know, to have a continued presence of more than 20 years in space for, you know, human spending consecutively in space. And then doing that, same, uh, those same objectives, but around the moon. So the new presence is, you know, let's, send, let's have a space station around the moon where we can have a continued human presence there. Let's bring the lessons that we've learned from the International Space Station and take them further. And then from there, as I mentioned, go, take, go down and have sustainable missions. So with the Apollo program, basically everything that was launched from Earth was launched. It cost a lot of money. They go all the way to the moon. They pretty much leave everything there and come back with a very small capsule. Whereas with the Artemis program, everything is reusable. Everything is uh, more sustainable, so it won't cost as much. And then once you've had this established presence around the moon over the next 10 or 15 years, you can use that as a springboard to go to Mars. So it's much cheaper, easier to go from the moon to Mars rather than going from Earth to Mars directly. So that's the idea behind this. So learn around the moon. It's further, it's harder, it's deeper into space. And hopefully that opens the, you know, in the 2040s to have boots on the surface of Mars. And, you know, as we talk about Mars, the Hope Probe, of course, has been a tremendous success since it was launched in 2020. We've seen so much new scientific data being presented throughout the mission, including troves of it this year as well. So what can we expect from the Hope Probe next year? The Hope Probe, I think, is, you know, uh, pretty much doing uh, what uh, it's been designed to do. So it's been imaging uh, uh, Mars's atmosphere. It's also imaged uh, Deimos, uh, very detailed images of Deimos, one of Mars's, one of the Martian moons. And we expect more of the same. So the idea behind the Hope Probe is to give us really a, a, you know, a, a, a whole Martian year of atmospheric data to understand how the, the weather patterns, the atmosphere of Mars works. And that's what it's done for the first two years. 
So one Martian year is about two Earth years. So that's what it's done for the first two years uh, of its existence. And we expect it to continue doing that for the next two years to give us basically two years of full Martian weather to better understand what's happening on that planet. If you better understand what's happening on the planet, when you send humans to land there, you'll be able to do that more effectively. And, you know, when it comes to developing local talent, that's been a big success again of the UAE's space program. The Space Science Research Program has now been launched for university students. Is the idea for this to be a pipeline to further talent development and to be able to have an access to to more UAE and local talent as well? Yeah, 100%. I mean, Sona, we work uh, with all age groups. So, you know, what you mentioned is kind of the the end of that cycle, which is the universities and and really research where you've got people who are in their third or fourth year of uh, university and they can come in and do active research and kind of shift towards space. But we start much earlier than that. So, you know, last week we had a camp, a space camp for uh, basically six to uh, eight-year-olds. And then the week before that, it was, you know, eight to 16. And the week before that, it was 15 to 18. So um, just getting school kids interested, getting the younger generation uh, to understand, you know, why we're doing this, why we're going to space, how exciting it is, how they can be part of that. Uh, You know, uh, those types of things, I think, You've got to start really early. And then when you get to a university level, all of us have been in university. And I think, I don't know if I, you know, I was, uh, uh, this was my situation when I was in university. When I was in the third or fourth year, I didn't know what I wanted to be. So, you know, I'm, am I studying the right thing? Am I doing the right thing? But if somebody had come in and said, you know, okay, you're an engineer, but you can do space science or you can work on a space mission and come and do that for 12 weeks and try it out, maybe that will help me and guide me to take a correct career choice or a more educated career choice. So that's really what it's all about, is you know, letting people know, whether they're Emiratis or not, people that are living in the UAE, what their options are, and getting them excited about space. Salam, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, and so wonderful, again, to, to look forward to a couple of the exciting things that we have happening next year. Thanks so much for joining us, and a very happy New Year's in advance to you. Thank you, Sano. Happy New Year to you and everybody at Dubai. Take care. Take care. Thank you. That is the voice there of His Excellency Salam Al-Mari. He is the Director General of the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center, telling us a little bit more about what's in store over the course of the next year when it comes to the UAE's space-related ambitions. We're moving on now to an international story, but it's fair to say the effects of it will be far-reaching globally. It's one that's poised really to affect the way that companies work and also which future professions potentially are viable. Now, the New York Times, as I mentioned earlier, has sued OpenAI for billions of dollars. They are not the first. They certainly won't be the last. And OpenAI is, of course, the company that operates ChatGBT. It's a large language model that produces its very helpful output to many by actually analyzing a large amount of existing existing data. The New York Times claims it's becoming a way for users to get access to their work without paying them. The suit says ChatGPT has learned from millions of its articles, and now it's competing with that established paper as a news source. They make the claim, the New York Times is, uh, that is, makes the claim that when it's asked about current events, ChatGPT will sometimes spit out excerpts of New York Times articles verbatim. So it's not just that it's taking it, learning from it, putting it together, synthesizing with other things, but in certain cases, it's actually using its language and its work directly. So even though these original articles should be paid content, the New York Times is not getting subscription fees or the ad clicks because it's coming through chat GPT now. Uh, the suit also names Microsoft as a defendant, a company that's invested heavily in open AI. So in the world of generative AI, it's fair to say copyrights, intellectual property are increasingly an in- a contentious theme. So we wanted to understand this a little bit better. So we're joined now in studio by Soham Panchamia. He's a partner at Alt Law. Soham, thank you for coming into the studio today. Thank you for having me. This is extremely exciting. Yes, it's a really interesting subject matter, isn't it? Because it's not the first time we've seen this. You've had authors, George Martin comes to mind, John Grisham have brought a case. Other fiction authors have called on AI mm-hmm. companies to compensate them for the work, even if they aren't bringing up a legal case. Yep. Comedian you- Sarah Silverman is a part of the suit. Um, and it's not just the New York Times. There are various other organizations, the Authors Guild of America. They're all coming forward and um, basically... What you need to realize with these sorts of cases, particularly in the U.S., is that they're test cases. Mm-hmm. They're using it to try and make force the courts to make a determination on this highly contentious issue. Um, 
Where it lands is going to be very informative to how the rest of the world starts interpreting this. But U.S. copyright law is a very particular beast unto itself. Right. When we're looking at copyright law, we really have to consider the transformative effect that AI is having. It. So actually, what you said right up top is extremely important. Where you said it's reproducing this information verbatim in some instances. That if you give it the right type of prompt, if you go into ChatGPT and you specifically say, um, "What did the New York Times say about, I don't know, about a, a topical uh, issue that's happening in the news right now?" and it produces that article verbatim without giving an attribution or a footnote, then at that point you fall out, fall out of what we call fair use uh, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And fair use basically means you are fairly using copyright of another organization that may be paid. But you're giving them the attribution. That's how university students can use all sorts of publicly available information that may be behind paid walls and copywritten mm-hmm. content, and that's why we teach them how to footnote. And fair use would probably be OpenAI's defense. Is that right? How did they defend a case like this? Well, the the position for OpenAI is a novel one, and it's very rare as a lawyer to be able to say that, because our entire profession is based on the idea of precedent. Something somewhere happened in the 1600s that has led to a principle that survives to this day. Um, in the case of OpenAI, it is reaching new areas of technology. I think back to the way the courts were forced to reckon with the idea of internet and software code. So one of the most common cases that used to come up is people used to copycat other people's websites that they spent gobs of money creating. And basically reuse all that effort for themselves. And then website, original website, sues new website and says, you're copycatting me. And in some instances, many instances, the court said, well, no, we have to look at the underlying software behind that website. Have they copied your underlying software verbatim? And the ones and zeros. If the answer to that is no, then even if it looks exactly the same, it's not copyright infringement right? because the copyright extends to the software and the way it's been laid out. Now, in more recent years, that's been updated as judges looked at uh, these two websites side by side and said, this looks exactly the same. You can arrange the code differently, but the end outcome as far as the user experience is concerned is exactly the same. And as courts and judges have become more familiar with the Internet, as we all have over the past 10, 15 years, um, now the look and feel of the website also matters. So it's not something that happened overnight. It happened bit by bit over a long, long period of time. It's going to be a sort of a similar situation with uh, generative AI. That is what ChatGPT does. Uh, We also have to consider what regulations are going to come into place. So, you know, the EU has put forward um, a four-pillared approach to regulating artificial intelligence based on the risk rating that they're giving it. So there's... um, the absolute non-compromisable risk, that is tier one. You've got high risk, medium risk, and very low risk. And the non-compromisable one is things like facial recognition, uh, where extremely sensitive or personal data of individuals is utilized. High priority is when you're using people's personal data, but maybe not their health and sensitive data. Mm -hmm. The medium risk is where you will see things like ChatGPT. And the recommendation so far, the the formal act hasn't come into effect yet, is, well, are they disclosing? Are they being transparent? Are they letting you know where they have pulled this information from? And then the extremely low risk has, again, disclosure requirements, but to a minimal standard. So the the standard that's being put on these folks in the AI community, and ChatGPT being the big one, but there are other um, AI models that are doing this, Shuttershock, and Getty images are locked in their own dispute for similar kind of generative AI technology that uses images, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing similar things when it comes to presentations, PowerPoint softwares that are being used and utilized to generatively create specific kinds of presentations and decks. So it has a much wider ranging impact than just ChatGPT. Of course, yeah. And at the end of the day, the real question is, has copyright really been infringed. So if it's verbatim, fine. But if the answer is, here's a paragraph from a New York Times article verbatim that's giving you X information about Mm -hmm. the prompt, but if the first three paragraphs and the last four paragraphs are different and not from that article, then would you still argue that that one paragraph alone results in an infringement of the total response? Or would you say that it's actually been transformed because you've recontextualized it? 
in a different context in response to the specific prompt that was created. It's not a black and white issue. It is not a black and white issue. And I can't wait to get into this in a little bit of further depth because I do have thoughts about the broader ramifications on people not being compensated for their work because some other companies being compensated, even if they haven't done the underlying work and there's mm -hmm. some tech that's just transforming other people's work for them. What ha happens to the original businesses, the original creators? Is there incentive for them to continue? And then when that dries up, what happens to the output that we're getting from generative AI as well? You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Do you feel there is an existential threat to your life, to your career as a result of generative AI? That's a question we're asking on The Agenda today. And one we're discussing with Soham Panchamia. He is a partner at Alt Law and he's still in the studio with us. And Soham, we've been having... A conversation. I kind of posed a question right before we went to a short break, but I want to come back to said question. We've been talking about what constitutes an infringement of copyright law, but also the idea that there are people who are original creators of work, and maybe in certain cases their work is not being used verbatim or sort of in an exact sequence, you could say, but there are times where they're being used in amalgamation. And it's their work that some other company is now being able to profit off of that that wouldn't exist if the original creator didn't put that work out there. So are we going to see a situation where, let's say, people get really reliant on ChatGPT and ChatGPT continues to get better? I'm using ChatGPT as an example. As you said, there are multiple generative AI platforms um, to the point that all of a sudden nobody's paying the original workers, the journalists, the artists, whoever they are they decide that's not a viable career profession and you see that whole profession sort of start to dry up a bit. Mm -hmm. Do you potentially see that as an as an outcome of, of generative AI and the way that it currently works with the fact that right now a lot of people are not being compensated for their work? Yeah, um, look, this isn't a new thing. Every time a new disruptive technology comes in, there's whole sections of existing workforces that disappear. Uh, we feel the AI effect um, much more acutely because it affects everything. Very rarely does that happen. The last time something like that happened was the internet. I mean, what happened to mom and pop stores once supermarkets went online? What happened to uh, bookstores? We don't see as many as we used to when I was growing up, certainly, because everybody buys their books online now. Mm. Um, we, we see that now with generative AI for the simple reason that regardless of the sector you're looking at, and I put this not just as actors and artists and voiceover artists, but also lawyers. Like, I'll give you a straightforward example. I don't need as much junior support as I perhaps needed when I was a junior because I can now get baseline drafting of documents done with protective AIs that, that preserve client confidentiality that are mm -hmm. also being developed, non-chat GPT. And they give me the baseline job. What used to take me 10 hours with two juniors is now taking me four hours with me alone and a little bit of software. Is that helping my client? Because you know what? The legal bill is going down. Um, so my client's really happy. But it also means that there are fewer lawyers who are going to get qualified. Uh, when it comes to um, the arts, that's where your question actually gets really, really interesting. Because the way you phrased it is an age-old question. If someone has created something that's based on the work done by someone else, should the original person be compensated? Well, how far do you take that argument? Because you've got to think about legal precedent here. Right. Um, if... I make a movie today that is heavily inspired and there's a retelling of, um, or, or take any of these Bridgerton TV seasons. Each season is ultimately in some form loosely a retelling of a Jane Austen novel. Does that mean Jane Austen's estate has to be compensated with the royalties generated by the TV show? Every movie, every piece of art is ultimately inspired from something else. And in some cases, the inspiration is a bit dubious and it's more of a copy. And we've all seen movies and TV shows like that, right. particularly when you have Arabic, Indian and other international um, locations, copy pasting Hollywood shows or vice versa. So th the truth is, it's not clear. Um, you've got YouTube music now where artists' voice are being used to sing other artists' songs. Mm -hmm. And that is being heavily contested. That's also being pursued in the courts right now. Right. The truth of the matter is nobody really has an answer because we don't know where to draw the line. And as that line is being figured out, as you pointed out earlier, it's it's a bit of a process. It'll probably take some time. 
who can sue these generative AI companies? Because right now we've seen the New York Times, we've seen well-known individuals, um, we've seen um, individuals who maybe aren't in the public sphere also mm -hmm. get involved with this. In theory, could a Dubai-based media company or an individual content creator sue some of these larger yeah. companies? Do you see those kind of international suits taking place? Because most of them I've seen so far have been in the Western world. Yeah, because that's where that culture exists. Uh, right. you, you sue to create law. We are lucky enough to live in a country where the law actually comes out relatively quickly. Mm. Um, over here, I don't see that necessarily being the case. Um, but what we've already seen is the Dubai government put out the ethical use of AI toolbox, which is a good jumping off point. There have been multiple discussions on a global level where the Middle East has participated to help try and come up with a regulatory framework on the ethical use of AI. Because there's no point fighting it. I mean, that's why places like the, where the New York Times is suing ChatGPT, Associated, Pre Associated Press has entered into a licensing deal with them right. to allow them to use their content. Is that licensing deal a fair deal? Nobody knows. It's a private commercial arrangement. We probably never will know. My guess is perhaps not, but they probably saw the writing on the wall, which is either get paid something or get paid nothing and end up in the courts anyway. And potentially that could be the way this shakes out is that people are somehow compensated by generative AI companies. And it's maybe, as you said, just as not as much as they might have been making otherwise. And I think you've got to also look at the other side of this, right? When the older fashion stores started going out of business because um, e-stores came in and, and internet and uh, e-commerce marketplaces came in, how does that then mean what kind of opportunities are now being created with the use of AI? Yeah. And, you know, just one last point for you that I want to ask is Microsoft often involved in these open AI lawsuits as well. In fact, in September this year, Microsoft said it would defend clients of its own AI products mm -hmm. from any copyright infringement lawsuits. So that the client using their AI wouldn't be solely sort of liable for that, but that Microsoft would help them fight that battle. It provides this kind of legal cover so that companies wouldn't have to fear using Microsoft's AI mm -hmm. products so that they could go ahead with growing this this arm of their, their business. Is this a relatively ex a normal expected thing or is this a bit of an unusual uh, take? Because it seems like going against a behemoth like Microsoft <laughs> legally would create quite a daunting situation, especially if it's, you know, just an individual who feels like their copyright has been infringed. Yeah. Uh, and what you described is exactly the intention, but it's also a personal business interest over there, not just with Microsoft, but with any tech giant that's developing some kind of AI model for the simple reason that you create that fund because you need people to continue to feel safe in using this technology because the more they use it, the more they train it, the more valuable the technology becomes. Right. Any stop to that ultimately devalues the technology at its core. So it's very self-motivated. It's also motivated a little bit by altruism because they don't want people who are using their service to be affected in this way. Mm. And yes, it's exactly what it is to make people feel uncomfortable about going down this route, um, to think that there's a behemoth standing on the other side and there's no way your uh, county lawyer is going to be able to fight Microsoft's lawyers. It's such an interesting area and issue, and we're going to see it continue to unfold for now, though. So um, thank you so much for walking us through it from a legal perspective. Oh, thanks for and, having me. And especially focusing on, on sort of the regional differences compared to what we see legally from the UAE and the U.S. So thanks once again for joining us in studio. Lovely to be here. Thanks. That's the voice there of Soham Panchamia. He's partner at Alt Law. And of course, it's a story that we'll continue to cover as we go. are tuned into the agenda this Friday. We are looking forward to the long weekend ahead as well. Now, a major focus and area of conversation on Dubai Eye over the course of the past month has been environmental sustainability. And a big story within that this month as well was the Zayed Sustainability Prize, because earlier this month at COP28, UAE, His Highness President Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed awarded the winners of the 15th Zayed Sustainability Prize. It's the UAE's global award when it comes to sustainability and humanitarianism. There were 11 winners across six categories, and they were all granted a share of a $3.6 million prize fund. Now, the 2025 cycle is officially open for submissions. They're going to be accepted until the 23rd of June next year, and you can do that through their website as well if you do want to get involved with that. SMEs, nonprofits, sustainability-focused high schools can all submit their entries in different categories, health, food, 
energy, water, climate action. And then for the schools, there is a global high schools program. This year, the prize money has gone up. It's increased its total funds to $5.9 million. So $1 million to go to each winner in the organizational category. And then the remaining $900,000 going towards schools with a winner in each of their six global regions. So it is very exciting to see that come up once again. And we're catching up now with one of this year's winners, Ignite Power's co-founder, Angela Homsi. Ignite Power is an SME that's based in Rwanda that won in the energy category. Angela, welcome to the agenda. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here. And I guess, first of all, a massive congratulations on this big win. How did you feel when, when you found out? Oh, gosh, it was amazing. It was beyond amazing. You know, like um, the prize is, is something that we've been wanted to be a part of for years. It's uh, it's it really aligned with our vision of creating like, you know, bold environmental and social change in the world and bold execution. And I think the prize really embraces that people have both the vision and execution to make a real change in the world. So being finally like, the winner of the prize and receiving from his highness, the president of the UAE was for us a, a very big, joyful moment for all of our team and for all of our stakeholders and all the people that work with us all across Africa and the Middle East. And tell us a little bit more about Ignite Power. Why did you start it? What was the motivation behind it? And describe also what you do. Sure. Um, Look, we're 2023. We started about like nine years ago. Now we're still in 2023 and you still have a whole bunch of people. I'm talking about two billion people in the world, across the world, that does not have basic access to electricity, basic access to infrastructure, Uh, and no access to internet, but half of those are in Africa. You know what it means? I mean, look at your home, like what it would be to live with like four walls in your house and you don't have lights, as in the sun goes down, it's pitch dark. There's no light, you don't feel safe. Uh, You don't have the ability to read or to do anything because it's pitch dark. Uh, You don't have the ability to charge any device or, you know, have education, do your homework, read books, or have like, you know, even like the opportunity to make money as a family because without devices in our modern life, it's almost like not having access to a basic human rights when you don't have like access to electricity uh, and to internet today. And when you see that there's so many people in our day and age that don't have access to this very basic, like life-enabling infrastructure, you really feel you need to make a change and do something about it. And it's not just about the social impact that you have on those people in terms of creating opportunity, economic development, access to education, better health, because they use candles or kerosene when they don't have electricity. And that means that it's one of the biggest killer women and children in emerging markets in, in, across Africa. So when you see those, you want to do an impact at the social economic level, but it's a lot of very big impact on the environment. So if you care about climate change, which I think all of us do, and this is something that has no border, like that affects all of us being in the UAE or being anywhere in the world, you want to make sure that these two billion people will embrace a, a path towards clean um, green growth in, in a way that basically they will not use like, you know, kerosene and very polluting diesel or things like that in order to to get access to the most like basic needs that, that they need to get access to. So for us, you know, that was a very massive problem to deal with, a very big challenge that touches on literally like 13 out of the 17 sustainable development goal, goals. It's at the heart of development and the heart of climate. So we were like, okay, we need to do something about that. And that's how Ignite was born. And when you talk about doing something about that, when you talk about electricity and energy grids, those are often provided by governments, by massive organizations. How do you take something like that on and much less provide over a large geographic areas to more remote areas, make it cost affordable and sustainable to do that, but then also do that using clean energy? What's the actual mechanism of providing the electricity? So that, that's a great question. And, you know, we, we look at ourselves like we're, we're the utility of everything of the future, right? Like, so we, we are basically leveraging a whole bunch of different technologies that we created in-house um, in terms of last mile logistics, in terms of operation, sort of digitization and verification models. And we do that in a way that we can really um, operate very, very effectively in the last mile, in very complicated, hard to reach places all across the world. And by doing so, in doing so, we provide what we call distributed electricity and distributed decarbonized digitized infrastructure and electricity and electricity and internet actually so both of them are very important um and 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 we're doing it in 10 countries so that's highly complex because you have like basically millions of clients we have about almost three million clients today two and a half million plus clients across 10 countries and in order to do that as you said usually it's the responsibility of government so what we what what, what we did is we we sort of like even 
decentralize that factor that usually infrastructure is in the hand of one big stakeholder. And because it's a distributed um, infrastructure, you can do it uh, in a private sector way. But you have to work with governments. You have to work with the utilities. You have to work with the local stakeholder. You have to work with the mayors. You have to work with a lot of international and local stakeholder to make that possible. It's, it's quite complex, but that's really our bread and butter. This is what we really over the last nine years have, have mastered in doing uh, effectively. And what does this prize award mean? Of course, there is a sum of money that comes along with it. How is it going to help you grow your business? Because, of course, I do want to point out it's an SME. You're not an NGO. It is a business. Mm, absolutely. Look, the, the money is great. And, you know, we got even the great surprise at the last minute. that The price was up to $1 million. And that's going to have a great impact specifically in one area. Is that because it's, 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 it's donated to us for the impact we have in the world, it's going to enable us to even... Um, go into a new area, which was quite hard to develop initially because it's, again, creating a new paradigm around schools in, 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 in Africa, around schools in rural areas. A lot of those schools, again, were not connected to the Internet or um, to power in many uh, parts of those countries. So we're going to deploy in our solution to schools, which is, a, again, a very different business model, like quite difficult to operate because it's not like individual or businesses paying for those solutions like we usually do with micropayments. And, um, and so we're developing now that model for 100 schools with the price money, uh, which will be fully equipped with electricity and Internet. And that's going to be amazing for uh, a new era of like, you know, providing access to education in a way that is a lot like it's really modern and really uh, more more technologically advanced now in those places. So that's going to be a very big deal for us because and, and for the impact that we want to have, because this was not part of our business model before. And that's going to be able to help us get into that new innovative area that has a really, really big impact. And just a last one for you. When you talk about the impact, of course, you talked about what it's like to live without electricity. For those people that you have created access to electricity for, how have you seen it change their lives? Uh, that's the biggest reward that you have when you do the job that we do. And I think that's the case for all of our, of our team. You go to the field and look, every, every like bit of money in terms of us being able to deploy a solution, it's, you know, a basic house is like two adults and three or four kids. And suddenly you see like, you know, smiles lighting up on their faces. You see them like looking to the future. So suddenly with a different, you know, hope and opportunity in front of them. It is a, it is a game changer in their lives. From, and a lot of our employees, we have thousands of employees um, across, across the continent. A lot of our employees that work with us are people that grew up without lights, that grew up without um, having access to those basic things and didn't know how hard it's been and how hard it is even for their own family that are still in rural area with no lights. And so they see the dark impact on their own people and their own family. When I'm talking about those people that don't have access to those basic infrastructure, in some of those countries, it's like 75% of the population. It's huge. And being able to do what we do at Ignite at scale for us and for all of our team and seeing that you're making a whole difference to your families, to your communities and to the whole country, really, is, is something that is um, an absolutely like amazing and make us like want to do more and quicker and faster and more urgently. And, you know, by doing it with the price as our partner now in the future, partner in vision and ambitions um, and in, in growth um, is, 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 is really fantastic because it's going to be able, make us able to do like to be even more bold and faster in our deployments. Angela, thank you so much for joining us on the show. And once again, congratulations on winning the prize. It is a tremendous achievement. So we look forward to seeing what you do with that in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me today. That is the voice of Angela Homsi. She is the co-founder of Ignite Power, doing incredible work providing electricity for those that currently do not have access to it in harder to reach areas. You know, the submission cycle for the Zayed, um, for the Zayed Sustainability Prize is now open for 2025. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. We look towards the new year as we look forward to 2024 something that comes up people set their goals their aspirations and as work-life balance has become more of a trend a lot more people thinking about having passions outside of work skills and hobbies not necessarily related to their profession but just something that they can develop for themselves so if you do have something like this that you're contemplating let us know 4001 what exactly would you like to pick up because there are more opportunities here in Dubai to learn unique skills that may not be related to your profession and one of those that 
that caught our attention was the idea of woodworking. Woodworking, also DIY, has become a bit of a trend globally, definitely due to social media. But are we seeing this here in the UAE? Luca Dalmolin, who is the founder of the Maker Society in Dubai, has joined us in studio. Morning, Luca. Uh, good morning. Thank you so much for coming in today. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And tell us a little bit more about the Maker Society. When did it start? Why did it start? How did it all come about? Uh, the Maker Society is an idea that uh, uh, came up to my mind uh, just after the COVID started. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was living already in Dubai since a few years. And uh, I always had uh, a strong passion for woodworking. So I decided that uh, I was going to reinvent myself. So I moved to Scotland and uh, I studied for nine months and I got a degree in furniture design, making a restoration. And uh, together with my wife, we decided, okay, we're going to go back to Dubai and we're going to do something. The idea started when I, I was already uh, in uh, 2013 in Dubai and uh, already had a passion for woodworking. I wanted to do something. There was no place to do it. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, there is, there's nothing. I'm going to do it myself. Yeah. So, yeah, that's how shortly it went. So this is a relatively new skill that you picked up before starting this society. Uh, yes, we opened uh, early September, 7th yeah. of September. So it's about three and a half months. Okay, great. And we're also joined on the phone line by Preeti Pawani. She is the owner of The Mud House. Good morning, Preeti. Good morning, Sonal. Uh, thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for joining us. Tell us a little bit more about The Mud House. It's all about ceramics and pottery as well, isn't it? Yes. So uh, it all started with uh, the pandemic, just like Luca. I, uh, I thought to myself that this is something I have never done. And uh, I, I enrolled myself in the first uh, pottery studio that opened after the lockdown. And, uh, you know, that was it. It was a life changer for me. And I said, you know what? I have to share this. There are not enough pottery studios in Dubai. And clay is a fantastic medium. And so I, over eight months, as the lockdown was just finishing, I set up the studio and I opened my doors to all the people. There are people who walk in even today and say, you know what? I've always wanted to do this. And that really makes me so happy and fulfilled. You know, Luca is nodding his head. I know you can't see him on the stu in the studio because you're on, yes. on the phone line, but he's nodding his head in recognition as you say that. People saying, <laughs> I've always wanted to do this. I can relate. There are these, you know, woodworking is something for me as well that I thought, oh, I'd love to learn a little bit of DIY and woodworking. But there's no place I know where I can actually learn those skill sets because with some of it, and this goes for both with working on the wheel and also working with tools with woodworking, some of those tools are pretty intimidating, especially, Luca, when you, when you look at them, when it comes to cutting wood or using bigger equipment. Is there an, a little bit of an intimidation factor that people have to get over to say, no, actually, if I just set my mind to it, I can learn how to do this? Uh, yes, absolutely. That's one of the things we try to um, like uh, to help people to understand that uh, as soon as they enter the workshop, uh, they, they look at the tools and say, wow, this is so big, this machine. And says, yes, it's big, but it's not that difficult. And what we do is uh, we support people in a journey. The idea is that we want to empower people to be able to make their dream projects to come true and uh, we guide them uh, and uh, also when we do the first very first introductory courses uh, we let them uh, make things with their own hands of course we we are there we supervise we help them uh, we explain as much as we can the idea is that there is no secret of the trade mm -hmm. we just give you everything we know because we want to, to be able to make things at the best yeah. And Preeti, what about you? Tell us a little bit about the interest that you've seen, because you open a passion project like this because it's a passion that you had, but you don't necessarily know that it's it's something that's going to be viable as a business for you. So so tell us about it from that point of view, about what the interest has been like. So from the word go, I knew this was going to work out because just like, as I felt about clay and, you know, I have traveled a lot uh, before, you know, before I moved to Dubai. I never found a place or a hub where I could actually explore this. And uh, coming to Dubai, uh, the few studios that I visited, and I said, you know what, we need more of these. And I think it's pretty doable. Uh, I know it can be intimidating when you walk into the studio and you see the wheels and, you know, we have two disciplines. We have hand building and wheel throwing. But we have, uh, I have three amazing instructors who are masters in ceramics. And I feel that given the right instructor and the right instructions, uh, you know, everything can be easy and doable. 
So, uh, you know, I, I just felt that this was a great business model for me. And uh, touch wood, it has really worked out. And there are more and more people trying to learn. And we are really moving towards building a Portis community in Dubai. And in the UAE, actually. Yeah. Milani's in the studio with us. Milani, do you have any passions or hobbies you're looking forward to developing next year? Do you think about this at the start of a new year? Yeah, well, actually, I tried... I, I, I tried pottery. Did you? It seemed it seemed easy when you're just watching it. Yeah. But, oh my gosh, I couldn't really do it. I needed the help <laughs> of the, all the instructors there. Yeah. yeah, I tried Mudhouse and I was telling Luca that I need to bring the kids soon. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I, I agree. These are things I want to try out as well. But like you said, they look easy to dabble in. But if you do want to turn it into a bit more of a passion, it takes work. Yeah, very you really, much. You really have to want it. Mine is not really, you know, long term, but just the first time that I did it, it was, I, I think it was such a mess. Yeah. <laughs> As it goes, you just pick up and you do it. You make a mess all over again the next day, right? We're going to stay and come back to you, Preeti, and to Luca in just a few moments. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda on Dubai Eye 103.8. We are talking hobbies, we're talking passions as we head into 2024 on the agenda. Julie's been in touch on the text line. She said, I'd really love to learn how to play golf, but just wondering how, as I'm already visited by the time thief every day. And I think that comment uh, that comment from Julie will resonate with a lot of people. In fact, Preeti, I'll start with you on this one. Uh, tell us, uh, you know, when it comes to making time for these hobbies, because of course your business, The Mud House, started with the fact that you learned how to use, you know, do ceramics yourself. And, and your own passion. How do people make time for it when they're really into it? So uh, the main thing is uh, being accommodative. Uh, my studio schedule is very, very accommodative to people's timings. Uh, we have classes and workshops uh, spread out over the day and the week in such a way that, you know, if you really want to do it, you are able to kind of make time for it and come in. We have morning classes, we have evening classes, we have workshops, everything designed. And on top of that, we are very accommodative also. There could be a time when you can't come in and finish your workshop. You know, we could always do a makeup class for you. So it's all about being accommodative and allowing people to, you know, pursue it and not stop and be discouraged. Yeah. And Julie, you know, my short-lived golf learning career for what it's worth what I thought was helpful is having a group class because then you're kind of accountable to other people as well so that was something that kept me going even though at times it felt a bit busy Uh, another thing Luca is you know who are your clients that you're seeing when it comes to woodworking and what you're doing at um, the Maker Society in Dubai are you seeing more working professionals like looking to do this on the side are you looking more for families for example uh, people with a bit more free time who are some of the people that are actually coming in so the idea is that we are a community, so we welcome any kind of people. That doesn't matter. Uh, ideally, uh, we have people who want to learn, who want to learn a new skill for a passion because they want to do something else. Uh, I've seen so far different kind of uh, uh, reasons um, from uh, having a, a client uh, that decided that uh, he would attend the introductory course and then he says, okay, because I just want to just build uh, the entire furniture from my apartment and actually is doing so is coming uh, regularly and is building uh, with one of my guys uh, his entire furniture which is absolutely uh, crazy and interesting to see uh, there is uh, another guy who decided you know I, I have enough with my job so I just want to to learn a new skill and because uh, woodworking uh, uh, makes you feel free and uh, because you do it with a lot of passion uh, you feel like I'm, I'm actually not working and doing something that I really love to do so and uh, also families they are very interested uh, we uh, were running in December uh, a Christmas program for families mm-hmm. for parents with kids uh, parents were building uh, um, a wooden uh, Christmas tree kids were decorating so it was very very bonding and you know you touched on some of the motivations that people have. I mean, for most people that come into you, is this a side passion, kind of just an interest, something to dabble in? Or are people actually looking to turn this into a career as well? 
Uh, absolutely, yes. There are uh, some of the guys. Uh, they they really want to turn it into a career. And uh, when we do the the first introductory course, I always ask the guys, "What is your motivation? Why are you here?" And uh, I hear so many times people saying, "Just because I I'm trying to to change my career, to shift it." Right. So, which is uh, it says a lot about woodworking. And Preeti, what about you? How many people are coming into you and sort of saying, "I've seen this beautiful ceramics line on Instagram, and I want to start selling, you know, my ceramics. I want to get good enough." so that I could start selling them. Is that yeah. a motivation or is it, again, just people looking to have a bit no. of fun? No, this is, uh, so I have all kinds of people coming in, just like Luca said. You start with an introduction and then you decide what do you want for yourself. And of course, time permitting, people, uh, people take this on as either a hobby or even a profession. So we are actually encouraging people to do the whole bit of the introduction classes, the workshops, the intermediate and the advanced. And then we help them set up a pottery studio in their own home so that, you know, they don't need to come off hours or, you know, so we make it very easy. So this is how we actually help in building the community. Answering your question, yes, there are lots who want to, who have almost retired or who have decided to take on pottery as a profession and a full-time job. And they've just completely taken to it. It's very addictive, by the way. Yeah, I can imagine that. I definitely want to come try it out soon. But, you know, I haven't asked you to yet because with the whole theme of this is it could be any passion that people are looking to try out in the next year. You're already both engaged with something that's a passion of yours. But is there anything new you're looking to learn in the next year, Preeti? So <laughs> I have tried everything. And this was the last thing on my list. Okay. And uh, I'm 60 now. So I started pottery at the age of 60, yes. And... <laughs> I think this is going to be it for me. I'm not going to look back because there's so much to learn and there's so much to do and I'm really so happy doing this. So I'm just going to concentrate on my business and on my potters and on my students and all the lovely people who walk in through into my studio and give 100% of myself to them. Brilliant. And you, Luca, anything (laughs) you want to try out as you move forward into next year? Uh, absolutely, I want to keep on learning woodworking. Not, not because um, I, I haven't learned uh, uh, so far, but I, I think it's a, such a huge and vast topic and subject that there are many things that uh, you, you really want to learn and uh, so many different techniques, and that's the beauty. Um, just to give you an example, uh, different uh, subjects are taught by different teachers because uh, each teacher, each, each tutor has a different set of skills mm-hmm. and uh, is particularly into that. So it's, it's, it's a vast, it's a vast sh- subject, absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much to both of you for joining us on the agenda today. Luca, thanks for coming in. Uh, you're very welcome. Thanks for you for inviting me. And Preeti, thanks thank for joining so us much. over the phone. Thank you so much. Thank you so and much. And so of much. course, if you are tuned in and you want to find out more, you can definitely look them up. We've got Preeti Pawani. She's the owner of The Mud House. If you want to get into ceramics and pottery. And of course, Luca Dal Molin, who is founder of the Maker Society Dubai, where you can learn a bit of woodworking. Can you also come in as and just use the space to work on your own projects Absolutely. as well? Absolutely the space, uh, we train on machines and uh, we are uh, uh, one destination for everything so we can do anything. Brilliant, thank you so much Luca as well for coming in. Tune into the agenda every weekday from 10am.